listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Today is a great day. Today is Palm Sunday, as most of you know. And this is a day that starts this amazing week in our faith, the, the Passion Week, the week that we remember and celebrate Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection the culmination of his work here on earth. And it is a week where we get to remember. It is a week that we get to celebrate. A week that is full of all kinds of meaning and symbolism behind everything that we see and do. And it's also a week that changes every year. I remember growing up not understanding why in the world Easter was never on the same day. Anybody else with me? Like, I was like, what in the heck? Why can't it be like Christmas and just be on the same day every year? Or at least like Thanksgiving and fall in the same month every year. It wasn't until later on in my life that I learned why it was that Easter changed all the time. It was when I learned that actually Easter is very closely tied to the Jewish festival of Passover. Because that is the week that we are celebrating here. That week that Jesus completed his work where his, his death, burial, and resurrection was during Passover week. And Passover changes every year because it is based on a lunar calendar, on the, the cycles of the moon. So that's why it fluctuated so much. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. There is a connection there between what I've known most of my life and what God has been doing. And that was only the first connection that I learned along my path, along my journey of learning more about God between the events that happened that week in Jesus' life and this festival that had been going on for thousands of years and and is still going on today. And because it is Palm Sunday, it is the beginning of this week and we are preparing for a Good Friday service and Resurrection Sunday next week, I thought... Now is a good time to maybe share with you guys some of those things that I've learned along the way, some of those connections that I've learned about the things that Jesus was doing and saying that week and how they're related to the Passover festival that have been observed for so long. Now, as I'm going into this stuff, I know that some of the things some of you guys have heard before, and so it'll be... Uh, not the first time, but sometimes I think some of you it'll be the first time you hear some of this stuff. But my, so whether it's your first time or your 100th time, my, my heart behind this, my desire for this is first off that it doesn't feel like you're sitting in a classroom at a Bible college and I'm just throwing out a bunch of academic information to you that goes in one ear and out the other. Like my hope is that the things that you hear today stick in your head and get into your heart and transform the way that you see who God is. That will excite you about his text and how there is so many things that he has done all along the way that has always been connected. My hope is that as, as you walk out today that you will take a piece of what we learned today, and it will change how you live your life 
how you observe different things in your walk with, with God, how you understand things that we do as a church here on a regular basis. So those are my hopes for today. But before we can start to get into some of those connections that I've seen, we have to start by laying a foundation. And that foundation is by looking, starts by looking at the context of this festival, the, the Passover. When, when did it first occur? Why is it so important? So in order for us to see this, we have to go back to the book of Exodus. Back to the time when the people of Israel found themselves being slaves to the kingdom of Egypt for almost 400 years. And the first time Passover shows up is actually in the form of one of the ten plagues that God sends on the land of Egypt. If you're not very familiar with the story, Moses was selected by God to go back into Egypt and be his representative there. To go to Pharaoh and ask Pharaoh to let God's people go so that they could go and worship him. Now, Pharaoh was not down with this idea. He was not wanting to let go of one of his most prized resources, which was the Israelite people. And so God sent plagues. Nine plagues that did no good. It wasn't until the 10th plague, the plague that was on the firstborn, that Pharaoh finally relented. The plague that was when, uh, what happened was God came into the, God's spirit came into the land and killed off all the firstborn in Egypt, even the livestock. And before this happened, God wanted his people to be ready. All the other plagues, they just kind of were passive participants. They just, everything happened around them to the Egyptians and they just were untouched. But for this one, God wanted them to be very intentional in how they prepared. And so he outlined some very specific things that they had to do leading up to when his spirit would come into the land. And I want to just point out a few of them just because it's going to be beneficial for us as we get back into Jesus' life and looking at this week in his life. The first thing I want to point out, if you, look, if you, if you want to look where this is at, it's in Exodus chapters 11 and 12 when it talks about the Passover. But the first thing that God tells them to do is that on a particular day, the 10th day of this first month in their calendar, they are supposed to go out into their fields, go out into their herds and select a one-year-old male lamb or goat that is without blemish, that is spotless, no defects. And they're supposed to take that lamb and bring it into their home and live with that lamb for four days until finally on the 14th day they sacrifice that lamb. And they use the blood from that sacrifice to paint on their doorposts to mark their homes so that when the spirit comes into the land that night, the spirit of God will pass over their homes. The next thing God tells them is that they're supposed to take that lamb on the 15th day and eat it. Roast it and eat it. Eat it with uh, some bitter herbs and bread that has no yeast in it. And after God gives them all these instructions, his final instruction about this Passover is that they are supposed to, to recognize and celebrate this every year. 
that it's going to be one of their primary, most important festivals that they do each and every year to, to celebrate the time and remember when God did mighty acts to rescue them out from underneath the Egyptian oppression and slavery. So that is the context. That is the initial time Passover shows up and some of the, the primary th- elements that are pre- present there. So let's fast forward back into time, back to the time when Jesus is on the earth, to that week of Passover for him, his final week on earth. And I have a graphic that I want to throw up to you guys, so, for you guys, so you can kind of see where these days fall at for him that particular week. So as you can see, we have, we're talking about the, the Passover week, which we know because of what I just shared with you about from Exodus 1, 11 and 12, that the first, pri- the first day that is of note is the 10th day of that month. That was the day that they were supposed to go and select the blameless lamb and bring it back into their home, the lamb that they were going to sacrifice on the 14th day. Well, when we look at what was going on in Jesus' life, we look into all of the different gospel accounts, we can start to piece where those things, what was going on in Jesus' life compared to that Passover feast. And you can see on the 10th day, the 10th day, the day that we are standing in right now, was the day that Jesus came into the city on the colt of a donkey. And he was welcomed into the city by the people as a king, But what they didn't realize is that is not what he was coming into the city as. No, he was coming in under the title of what John the Baptist had said about him years before, that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was on this day that the Lamb of God was brought into the house, into God's house, The next few days are blank here, but Jesus was doing a lot of work in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, ministering and healing people. But the next one I want to point out is that 15th day, that day that they were supposed to have the Passover meal. This is the day that we have our last supper that we know about. The last time Jesus sat down happened that night. It is also the same day that the crucifixion Happens later that morning. He's buried. He's in the tomb during the Sabbath and raises from the dead on the 17th day. Now, <laughs> there, there are so many things that I don't even get to talk to you guys about that's going on in this one week. Oh, there's a bunch of other festivals that are taking place. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that starts. The Feast of Weeks, like... The, there is so much happening here that I don't have time to, to talk about because God is so awesome that he connects so many things just in this one week. But I want to go back and f- focus primarily for the rest of our time on the, that Passover meal. But before I do, I know that you guys are probably all mathematicians like me. And you're looking at this thing and you're like, the math doesn't seem to add up here. 
I thought Jesus was in the grave for three days. It only looks like he was in there for two. Something that we have to keep in mind is for the Jewish person, a day ends and begins at sunset. For us, a day ends and begins at midnight, right? But for them, their day begins at sunset. So what would be the four, evening of the 14th of that day for us is actually the beginning of the 15th day for them. As soon as the sun sets on that 14th day, on that Thursday, it now becomes the 15th day. And so Jesus has his meal with his guys on the 15th day. Later that evening, you know, after midnight, he's arrested, put under trial, under secret, while everybody else is asleep, and he's on the cross by nine in the morning, that Friday morning. Dead by the afternoon, and put into the grave before the sun sets on the 15th day, because the next day is Sabbath and they can't do any work. And for the Jew, it doesn't matter how long you are in the grave. As long as you're in there before sunset, that counts as one day. So he is in the grave for one day on the 15th day. All day on Saturday, the Sabbath. That's day two. And sometime on the third day, he raises from the dead. But let's go back to the Passover meal. I t- like, I'm telling you, there's... Take some time to unpack some of this stuff. It is phenomenal. But I want to go back specifically and talk about this Passover meal. Because there are things that go on. There are things that Jesus talks about and does in this time that I think, well, for me personally, has really impacted the way that I have thought about God and thought about my faith. It has brought things to a much deeper level to me, for me. Now, when we think about the Passover, that, that last supper, supper, I don't know about you guys, but one of the things that first comes to my mind is this, this picture right here, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. Anybody else think about that? Some of you. One of the guys in our, life, our uh, sermon club said that there is a really bad joke about that that I should tell. And I will. I'll tell it. Okay. All right. So Jesus walks into a restaurant, goes up to the hostess and is like, hey, I need a table for 26. She's like, why? You only have 13. He's like, it's okay. We're only going to use half the table. I told you it was a bad joke. But now you'll think about that every time you see this. Really, the only thing that is accurate about this painting by da Vinci is how many people are there. But I I don't really blame him. Like To try to capture all of the things that happen that evening in this span of time, these three, four hours that they're having this meal, would be very difficult to put that all into a a painting. Like There was so much going on that evening, even down to where people were sitting. Now, From the Gospels, we are given some 
some good hints about what this dinner actually probably looked like. Matthew and Luke both talk about how they were reclining at the table when they came together to eat dinner together. Now that is a good hint for us to know that this is a triclinium meal. A triclinium meal was a type of meal that started with the Greeks and bled into the Romans and even started to be used by the Jews. And if you don't know what that is, this is what a triclinium looks like. It's just three tables placed together in a U. And when you're sitting at this, you're not actually sitting at this table. You are reclining at the table. And everybody is going to be laying next to the table on their left elbow with their feet pointed away from the table. Because who wants your, your buddy's dirty, nasty feet in your face or next to your food when you're about to eat, right? Nobody wants that. So everybody's leaning on their left elbow, and they use their right hand, their clean hand, to be able to reach over, grab the food and eat it, or pass it to themselves or to their friends. Now, why this is such a, an important piece for this evening is because where you sat around this table meant a lot about who you were in society. Meant a lot about who you were and how you were viewed with your group of people. There were very specific places that you would get placed. I want to show you what, what some of those places were. So the most, for every meal you have a host. And the host would always plan himself right here on the left side of the triclinium, two people in, so that he could be able to, you know, welcome everybody and uh, conduct the meal. This was his place right here. And there were two places on either side of the host that were the most important places to be, uh, to be sitting around this meal. Directly to the right of the host, or if you think about it as the host is laying down, some, the person that would be reclining in front of them, is the person who is their right-hand man, their, their most trusted friend. You're, when this first started, like in the Greek and Roman culture, this is where like the cup bearer would be, the person that the food first came out to. They would test it to make sure it wasn't poisonous before it got served to everybody else. So like, this is a very important position. And then the position behind the host, as he's laying down to the left, is the guest of honor. And as you work your way around the rest of this table, you would work your way in importance in society or in your group until you got to the last place, which was the servant's seat. Now, if in fact this is the kind of meal that Jesus has with his guys, which I believe it is because of the language that is there, all of his people are in specific places too. Because one of the things you have to, to remember is it's not a first-come, first-served basis here. The host is the one who places people in their seats. So however the host views you, that's where you end up. So let's, let's look at Jesus' group. And from the text, we can 
determine with a high level of certainty where four of, his thir- four of the 13 might be sitting. First off, you have Jesus, who's obviously, he's the host. This is his dinner. He's the leader. He's going to be the one that is here. And if you have spent time in the Gospels, you know that Jesus has three of his 12 guys that are really close to him. Peter, James, and John. They're the ones who experienced some things that the rest of the nine never did. So you would expect probably that two of the three of them would end up on either side of Jesus. And you would be somewhat correct. As you look into John's account of what was going on that night, John talks about there's a moment in, during this supper when he leans back and places his head on the chest of Jesus. Now, look at the way this thing is organized. If everybody is laying on their left elbow, feet pointed out, where is the only place that somebody would have the opportunity to lean their head back and put it on Jesus' chest? The seat of the right-hand man. This is where John is. Which surprises, surprised me. I would think that Peter would be there. It seemed like Peter was Jesus' right-hand man, but that's not where he ended up. But we, we do have a good idea of where Peter does end up. Because there's a moment in the middle of that dinner when Jesus is talking about the, the fact that there's someone there that's going to betray him. Peter gets John's attention. He's like, hey, what did he say? Who, who's he talk, ask him who he's talking about. Now, if Peter was behind Jesus, he couldn't do that. He would have had to have been in a place where he had line of sight, probably with John. And where John is at, he doesn't have the opportunity to see a whole lot of people except for those who are on this other side. The prevailing belief is that Peter was down here in this last seat, the servant's seat. So that's three. Three of the four that I told you that we know where they were at. And we go back to the text and you read Jesus continuing that conversation about who's going to betray him. And they're like, who is it going to be, Jesus? Who is it going to be? He's like, it's the person who I hand the bread to. That is the person that is going to betray me. And when you think about how Jesus is probably situated here, he's, he's probably laying down like this, right? And if John is in front of me and Peter is over there and I'm going to hand the food to somebody that I know is going to betray me, there's not a lot of places I can go other than whoever is sitting right behind me, the person who's sitting in the guest of honor seat. And who betrayed Jesus? Judas. Judas is sitting in the place of honor. Jesus placed the guy that he knew was going to betray him in the seat that was supposed to be honorable. One of the most important places there. It's, it's almost like Jesus is saying, without saying it, Judas, 
I know what you're about to do, but I still love you. I still value you. See, I have put you in this place. And when I learned this little bit about what was going on that night, I, it rocked me. Because there are a lot of times when I feel like I'm not worthy. There are a lot of times that I feel like I've disappointed Jesus and he doesn't love me. But man, if he does this with, with Judas, I know he does the same for me. I know that he still loves me. He still values me. Even when I've messed up. But this... <laughs> This is just a small bit of the amazing things that are going on this night. This isn't even what I really actually wanted to talk to you guys about. Because I want to go and talk specifically about this meal that they're having and some elements that show up there. Now this, today this meal is referred to as the Passover Seder. Uh, anybody here ever taken play, uh, part in the Passover Seder? Quite a few of you. That's awesome. Yeah, I get to have a Seder with my, my life group this Wednesday. I'm very stoked for it. We're going to have a great time. There's 31 of us, adults and kids. We're going to have a good time. But the Seder that we know today, that we, we observe, that the Jews observe today, is, is one that we have learned from a book called the Mishnah. Now, this book, this, this, this collection of writings did not come out until the second century, so almost 200 years after Jesus was on the earth. But, and because of that, like, there is no way to certainly say that the Passover Seder that Jesus had with his guys is exactly the same as what we see in the Mishnah. But there are things that are described in that set of writings, the writings that were oral traditions and and interpretations for the longest time before they're written down, that do show up in this this Last Supper with Jesus. You do see the things that we talked about earlier, some of the things that are ordered in the meal, the, the roasted lamb, you see the bitter herbs, you see the unleavened bread present. One of the things that we didn't talk about or didn't see in Exodus that is in the Mishnah, that is practiced today, is the presence of four different cups of wine. Now these four cups, I remember like, where did these even come from? Because they're not in the text. How did these, these rabbis and these teachers determine that there were four cups that they needed to represent at this meal. Because you got to remember, this meal is something that is super powerful and for them. Everything within it is pointing back to something that God did for them in the Exodus. The, the whole purpose of the Passover Seder is to remember the things that God did to bring them out from underneath the Egyptian slavery. And the place that they actually find these four cups are based off of four promises that they have that God made in Exodus chapter 6. And I want to read those promises to you guys. 
In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, it says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So in this text, there are four different promises that are identified that correlate to the four different cups that show up in a Passover Seder. The first cup is called the cup of sanctification. It correlates to God's statement, I'm going to take you out as my people. I'm going to set you apart for something important. And then there's a cup called the cup of redemption, which ties to God's statement, I will, I'm sorry, not redemption yet, deliverance. Cup of deliverance. I will free you from being slaves. The third cup is the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty works of judgment. And finally, there is the cup of restoration. Now, I, I point these four cups out to you guys because I believe that these show up that night for Jesus in the midst of his dinner with his guys. That night when they are gathered together remembering what God had done, how he had brought, he had reached in and freed them from their slavery and made them his own. This was a part of their, that dinner. And I'll show you where it pops up. In Luke chapter 22. Here's what Luke 22 verse 17 says. No, we're in 14 first. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. There's that hint again that they were laying next to the table, a triclinium meal. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not eat again, drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Here's the first cup. First cup that shows up in this meal. Now, whether or not this is the cup of sanctification or deliverance, it cannot be said for sure. But in the Seder meal, all of these cups appear at specific times throughout the course of your evening. And the first two cups always come before you actually eat the meal. And as we saw, they have not eaten yet. This is right at the beginning, so it, it's either one of them. As we continue to read in verse 19, it says, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a, there's a point in the meal when the host grabs the bread and breaks it and passes it around. 
But in particular, this, this bread is that unleavened bread, the bread without yeast in it. And it was this picture, this reminder for the people of Israel that this is your freedom. This bread is a representation of your freedom. And Jesus was telling them, look, this, I am going to be your freedom. I will be the one that frees you from your slavery. And as the meal continues, in verse 20, he says, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This third cup is the, is the cup that really, for me, rocked my world. This, this has got to be the third cup because it's right after the dinner. This is the cup of redemption. Like for me, as I remember growing up with communion, taking communion, I, I grew up initially in a Catholic church, so I, I did first communion. But for me, I didn't really understand it. It was just a ritual that was done every week. It really meant nothing to me. And even as I left, my family left the Catholic church and started going to Protestant churches, and we do communion each week, or in some of them never ever at all, like I just had no connection with that other than it's supposed to be a, a reminder of Jesus' death and my forgiveness of sins. But this was a very specific tie for me to communion. Like each week when we, when we grab our, our elements and we are taking communion together, like there is more to it than just remembering that Jesus died for our sins. Like every time we take this bread in our hands, Every time we take this bread, this is a reminder for us that God, that Jesus gave his own life for our freedom. Like what happened this night? Like I I know they were sitting there and they were remembering the exodus and I'm sure they were hoping that God was going to show up again and free him once more from from Rome. But what was going on is Jesus like, I'm inviting you into something more. I'm inviting you into a freedom that is from sin and death. From an oppression that you don't even know is there. And so this is a, becomes a reminder for me each week that I have been bought with a price. As I look at the freedom that I have and the price that it cost, Jesus' blood. And I have been challenged during my life to, as I've learned these things and God has opened up the door and, and I've, I, feel like, I feel like what I've been doing for most of my life is sitting in a dark room watching a, a black and white silent movie on a 12-inch screen. But every time I learn 
how deep and amazing God's word is, how everything that he does, everything that Jesus said and did is woven together. It's all connected, all pointing to God's restoration. And every time I learn that, I feel like I get transported into the middle of an IMAX theater watching Avatar in 3D. Like it's like everything comes to life. The colors are vibrant. There's depth to what I'm seeing and reading and learning. And I'm called and invited into an exodus of my heart, like we just talked, saying about this morning. This is my reminder to celebrate the freedom that God has given me. And sometimes we don't do well at celebrating. Sometimes we forget, sometimes I forget what God has given me freedom over. There's a lot of hours in the day. There's a lot of hours in the week. And so I love and appreciate the time that we have each week as a family to come together and remember. And I try the best I can to remember the different places that God has given me freedom over. Freedom over loneliness, of anxiety, depression. Freedom over addiction and lust. And I get to do that every week. And he invites all of us to do the same. For me, as I continue to learn more and more about God, like all the things that I've done throughout the course of my life in the church that I didn't really understand begin to mean so much more for me. So as you are taking out your bread today, I want to invite you all to not just think of it as you have been before. I want you to think of it as a picture of of your freedom. Your freedom that you have in Christ. And maybe you need to just take a moment to thank God for those areas that he's given you freedom over. Praise him and celebrate what he's done in your life. On that night, as he sat around that, as he reclined around that table with his guys, and he took that bread, that bread that they knew represented their freedom from slavery and oppression, and he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body that is broken for you, and I'm offering you freedom from the slavery of sin and death. Let us remember together the freedom we have in Christ. And then after the meal, he took the cup. The cup that reminded them that they had been redeemed. That there was a price that was paid for their freedom. 
in Egypt. He said, this, this cup of redemption, this price that is going to be paid as I usher in this new covenant with you is going to be paid in my blood. So as we take this together, let us remember that night that he paid everything for you. There is no outstanding debt. There is no tab being ran up. You are free, and the price has been paid. Let us remember together. Let's pray. Father God, um, Lord, I continue to be amazed by, by you, by your text, by the things that you did and you are continuing to do, Lord, as you are restoring us back to, to your original intent and design. Lord, I thank you for all the little things that your son did while he was here, how everything had a deeper meaning and a purpose to draw us closer to you. And so, Lord, as we step into this week where we celebrate and remember what you did for us on the cross, Lord, as we celebrate and remember that you conquered sin and death and rose again on the third day, Lord, help us, Lord, help us each day to remember our freedom that we have in you. Lord, help us to remember and celebrate the fact that you have redeemed us and restored us and that you have placed us on this path to work with you in restoring all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.